Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, we sit down with Sam Williams from Arweave to talk about decentralized storage and how they address some of the problems with that in their software. So today, Frederick and I are sitting here with Sam Williams. Hi, Sam. Hi. Thanks for having me. Sam's from Arweave. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about decentralized storage and the decentralized storage topic. So this is something that we kind of started talking about over a year ago. We had a decentralized storage series. Still not finished. We just, we've decided we're not going to make it a three-parter as we had originally thought, but rather just have it be a continuum. But I think today we will hopefully get a chance to speak a little bit more about this topic and uh, maybe find out a little bit of how Arweave plans on tackling it. So maybe to start off, do you want to just introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Sam Williams. Uh, I'm the CEO and one of the co-founders of the Arweave Project. Um, the Arweave Project is essentially a permanent information storage system. So we've taken a blockchain and modified it so that um, you can essentially store very large amounts of data on the chain itself. Um, and it has a sort of crypto economic incentivization mechanism that allows you to persist that data for very long periods of time. Cool. So let's dig into that a little bit. So I think this is super interesting, you know, how, how you actually write this blockchain and how you incentivize things and how you ensure availability and everything else. I mean, there's a ton of problems here to unpack, and this is something that a ton of projects are trying to tackle. So maybe like, start out at the core of you know what what is unique to Arweave and what is it built around? Yeah, I mean, the thing it's built around is this uh, data structure that we call a block weave. It's essentially a modified blockchain where instead of just including the hash of the last block in the production of the next block, you also pick a uh, pseudo-randomly chosen previous block from the network and you require that in the um, proof of work to produce the next block in the system. And so what this means, because the miners can't... Uh, essentially guess ahead of time which block is going to be required to mine, say, block, you know, N plus one, uh, is they have to store as many of the old blocks as possible. And the consequence of this is what we call proof of access. So they need to be able to prove that they can access the old blocks in the system in order to produce the new blocks. And because storage is exceptionally cheap in comparison to hashing, they're incentivized to optimize their storage capacity before they optimize their uh, hashing capacity or capabilities. And so this essentially means there's a really strong incentive for miners to replicate as much of the old data structure in the network as possible. Basically, you're using this pseudo-randomness to make sure that a miner keeps the chain. But is this also, so, like, are you also storing data in that? Yes, exactly that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and the miner, we've essentially memoized the state of the blockchain. So you can join the network by just downloading a set of about 50 blocks. Um, but you can obviously download the whole thing if you want to verify it. Yeah, but the expectation really is that people will join on another peer and then they'll just download as many blocks as they can before they run out of storage. And that'll essentially dictate the proportion of the time that they can uh, hash on new blocks in the system. Thinking about other projects that are tackling this, I feel like what I've usually understood it as is more like 
you have a blockchain and then you have a place where data is stored and then there's sort of check-in points. But what you're describing is something else. Yeah, it's completely different. Okay, so the yeah. data itself actually is the blockchain? Yeah, I mean, one way of uh, looking at it is saying it's like on-chain data storage that scales. So what we're looking at is permanence of data storage. Most of these other, in fact, I think all of these other storage projects are really just looking at decentralized storage. We're looking at slightly smaller quantities of data. We're making sure that data is around forever. So if you wanted to, I mean, I'm just picturing if you wanted to like have this blockchain, if you want to, if you had a client, you're a miner, you're holding a ton of data. Like this is going to be a huge blockchain. Yeah, eventually. <laughs> I mean, we, we hope for it to get extremely large. That's kind of the point. Okay. Uh, but the idea is that, you know, if you're a miner and you can only store a terabyte, then you just store a terabyte. But say it's 10 terabytes, then you can only take part in the hashing competition 10% of the time. Ah, I see. So you basically, it's, you wouldn't be punished in the way that some other blockchains would punish you for not having the full thing. You're expected to not have the full thing. Precisely. So we have okay. a sort of competition-based approach to storage rather than a contractual-based approach. Okay. So most of these other projects, they go off and they say, hey, I want six people to store a replication of this data for this period of time, and I'll pay this much money for it. And then the blockchain is essentially used to like settle payments for that. We take a totally different approach where we say, no, you should just compete to make as many copies of this data as possible. And the net effect of this in practice, because we've been running since uh, June of last year, is that if you add a piece of data to Arweave today, you get 150 replications of that piece of data, which is, um, yeah, it's like the highest level of uh, data replication available in any commercial system right now. I want to dig into a bit more on the, on the guarantees of that system, but I had two questions that just popped up. One is, uh, you say you choose this old block in some pseudo-random fashion. Where does this randomness come from? <laughs> yeah, it's actually really simple. We just use the independent hash of the last block, which is not the dependent hash, which is sort of what you used to if you're from the kind of uh, Bitcoin world, say. It's a derivative of this. But this is fine, because the only thing that you can uh, do by manipulating that value is make it so that you have access to the next block that will be required. But, of course, you had access to the current block. So you have to throw away candidate blocks that are valid that you would get a reward for just in order for you to take part in the hashing, get a potential reward for the next block. So yeah, you can technically kind of uh, choose which block, but there's no incentive to do it. In fact, actually, the uh, yeah, it's a big O N squared or difficulty squared problem. So like, there's really no incentive. But yeah, it means that we can keep the protocol super simple. But I still, I'm not clear on exactly where does the random, where does this random number come from? So it's an from? output of, well, actually a sort of two-step derivative of the proof of work of the previous block. You have a pseudo-random number that gave you some other, ran like, you've taken the hash of a random block into your proof of work, proof of yep. work thing, <laughs> and then you use that to then generate your next number? Yeah, so okay. what happens in the system is because... It's a block weave, not a blockchain. In order to verify an old block, if we didn't have this thing that we call the independent hash, you would have to have access to the recall block for that old block. And that's, of course, a recursive problem. So you would end up, if you want to uh, verify, I don't know, block 10,000, the complexity is like, I think it's a uh, big O N fact. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. Big O log two. There we go. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> So so we have to have this system that we call an independent hash, which is like once you produce the proof of work, so you take the data segment that's including all of the contents from the uh, recall block, uh, you find a nonce that uh, satisfies the difficulty requirement, you then take the transaction IDs from the current block and all of the sort of metadata, and then you hash that again, including the dependent hash, 
And now you've got what we call the independent hat. And that is the randomness number that well, you're going to use. Well, then you can use this to derive randomness. Okay. Yeah. You also mentioned that hashing was more expensive than storing the data. Which hash, like which proof of work algorithm are using which hash function? Yeah. So at the moment, I mean, underneath the proof of access layer, there's sort of normal proof of work underneath. And it's just SHA-2384 uh, at the moment. Um, but we've got a Genprog implementation that we built that we're kind of testing out. We've been running a testnet of that, I think, since early December, but we're just sort of like uh, leaving it going. Everyone seems very tenuous about the idea of Genprog. Like, it's really nice in principle, and, and the, um, the logic behind it is excellent, but like nobody's really done it in practice at scale. So we're kind of waiting to see how that goes. So when I was looking through the light paper, what I understood was that you have these miners that are grabbing kind of random blocks, creating the new block, block, not blockchain, block weave. But then you also have this data structure. Is that the thing that's sort of binding this all together? This block weave data structure? Yeah, exactly. So when we try and explain this to people, it's kind of interesting. Like proof of access is a, um, an emergent property of the block weave data structure. You can't really have a block weave without having proof of access. So they're, they're very closely linked. And yeah, that certainly ties together the sort of storage part, but then the um, the delivery of data part is, is basically off-chain and different. Speaking of delivery, um, something that all of storage projects have to deal with is you know, how do you actually use the data that's stored and how, how do like a normal person start up a node and, and get access to the data? and um, and sort of what's, are there incentives around this? Are there like, is bandwidth usage incentivized, et cetera? Like, how does that work in Arweave? Yeah, absolutely. It's essentially the same competition-like approach. So what we've done is taken something very similar to um, optimistic tit-for-tat, which was what uh, BitTorrent used way back in like you know, 2007, 2005 or so even. Um, and still yeah. using. Right, right. Well, it, it's kind of modified nowadays. They've got like better systems. But basically, we've taken that as the, the core principle, which is like, if you give me some data, I'm going to give you some data. In order to sort of kickstart that system so that it tends towards everyone giving everyone data, then there's a little bit of optimism at the beginning. It's like, I'll, I'll try giving you some data and see if you give me some data back. And when you do, then then the, the torrent or, or swarm or whatever you want to call it starts to flow. Uh, yeah, so we use a system like this. And on top of that, there's... Uh, a data distribution um, incentive relating to transactions and new blocks. So obviously, as a miner, you want to get tra access to transactions as soon as possible, as well as new blocks. Like this is critical to being an effective miner. Uh, so what we do is we say, okay, well, if you serve my data request, not just uh, quickly, but also like reliably, you don't say you've got a piece of data and then just flake out. Um, then I'm going to prioritize you for the distribution of those new transactions and blocks, which makes you a more efficient miner. Um, yeah, so you have this sort of two-layer incentive to the data distribution mechanism. But you don't have any concept of like a light client in there where, you know, I'm a user who, who I don't really want to store any data. I just want, you know, to get access to this website that I'm trying to get access to or whatever. And, uh, you know, I want this small piece of data. I don't want to participate in the network as a whole. Uh, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, essentially, the nodes are trying to trick each other into thinking they're browsers to begin with. So when you attach a browser to the system, it just looks like another node in the network. Um, yeah, this is a kind of interesting area because there's lots of things about that that are, uh, you'd think it would be a protocol level incentivization system. And it is to some extent, like it's a pretty basic concept. But the intricacies of how you get that to work are all about the web stack, which is a really messy and complex topic.
But there is so yeah, like going back to like like client structures in Ethereum, for instance, a like client can get a piece of data and like a, a piece of witness data of like in the Merkle tree and prove that yes, this is the right data you're giving me and and like this is all good and I can proceed. And uh, full nodes who serve these like clients, they in Ethereum they have no incentive to do that. Um, and there is like a credit based system. They just give out credits for free currently, and it mostly works because of altruistic behavior. But I mean, there's lots of discussions on how to incentivize this, but it's it's extremely hard. Like you'd have to do it on a per request basis or whatever. Have you guys thought and at all about like how you incentivize and like do you have this proof structure as well? Like you can prove that you're given the correct thing. Yeah, yeah. This is mostly about gateways, actually. So, so basically, in the incentive structure, we're just sort of piggybacking on the way that the nodes talk to each other uh, to begin with. But about proofs, you you essentially uh, trust a node in the network, or you run the web extension that we built, which is essentially kind of like a like client. And then you can download um, the data metadata that you need in order to prove that something was part of the block weave at a certain height. Then you take the transaction, you prove that. But we think that actually. It's going to be really important with these sort of web on a blockchain or web in a decentralized storage network uh, systems that n- your user should not have to be able to or should not have to do anything in order to be able to access the data. It should just seem like they're accessing a normal website, yeah. and maybe they lose some level of uh, trustlessness when they do that. So in our system, you would connect to a trusted gateway, and that gateway would uh, serve you the data as well, or rather, they would serve you a frame which allows you to get. The data from someone else in the network and then verify that the data that you've got is actually legitimate. But yeah, it should be a kind of uh, see-through process. The user should just think that they're accessing a web page, which is actually what we've achieved at the moment. It's pretty neat. It's funny, just before we were having a conversation about the word trustless and trusted, mm-hmm. and I'm kind of curious what you mean there. So you would access a trusted party in order to get into the trustless system. Yeah, system. that's exactly right. So what is the trusted party? Yeah, so you have to choose a gateway to talk to. The, so is that a miner? Um, miners can run gateways, but they don't have to. And gateways are specific things in the block we, Like, where does that live? What's yeah. a gateway? Yeah, it's actually just a small package of HTML and JavaScript that you need to serve to a browser that will then allow that browser to go talk to another node in the network. So it's got a bunch of peers that the node that you spoke to in the beginning, the gateway, told you about. But then it allows you to verify that the other things in the network that the people are giving you are actually correct. I mean, I would think about it as a sort of IPFS gateway. I mean, they do the same thing, right? You can, like, I mean, conceptually, like you go to IPFS.io slash whatever hash. IPFS.io can be owned by any random person. They can give you any random data. There's no guarantee that they're giving you this thing. You are trusting whoever owns IPFS.io to to serve you that gateway correctly but you can set up your own gateway too if you want and serve yourself through that yeah it's kind of like that but slightly different so when you connect to ipfs.io or the cloudflare run gateway then they're going to serve you the data that is held locally what we do is give you a small frame that your it's essentially a program that your browser can run that allows you to download that data from other random people in the rweave network and then verify that the data that you're getting back is actually legitimate yeah, which really cuts down on gateway traffic. So it gives people more of an incentive to run the gateway in the first place. Which I guess like in an Ethereum world would be akin to the gateway giving you all the headers and then you go out and 
like request data from the rest of the network and you can validate that data against the headers that you're given. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. But you don't actually have to use the gateway. So if you install the Arweave web extension, then if you go to an arweave.net stroke something URL, then it uh, takes you to a node that you already know in the network. And of course, you already have this sort of program that verifies the data that you're getting um, Yeah, inside the web extension. So you just do it that way. No gateway, totally decentralized. How's the web extension built? Like, is it all JavaScript or like, are you running native binary something that you're downloading? Yeah, it's just TypeScript using a subtle crypto library, which uh, is built into the browsers nowadays. Although, honestly, crypto libraries in JavaScript are <laughs> an absolute nightmare. Um, yeah, it's really unfortunate that we're in 2019 left in this situation where, you know, you're trying to convert between PEMs and JWKs and it's just yeah, you know, we really shouldn't be having to do any of this anymore. But yet, here we are. <laughs> are you going to be writing the libraries that do this? Is that what's happening? I mean, we thought about it really carefully, <laughs> but then we also figured that that what you end up with is is all of these sort of semi-complete crypto libraries that do this and that and that thing, but not that and that and that other thing. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that we essentially have clogging up the ecosystem at the moment. It would be much better if there was a sort of uh, serious standardization effort that that made seriously uh, well vetted. Yeah, crypto infrastructure for JavaScript programs. But, you know, we live in hope, I guess. If I actually just open up a browser. I'm looking at a website that's hosted on our wave. Am I all of a sudden a miner? Or No. No, no, no. no. How You're do just I a become peer. a miner? Ah, so you go to our website, you click on the uh, become a miner button, and then, yeah, you download a client locally on uh, Linux or, or Mac machine. Um, yeah, and you run basically what is essentially an Erlang program that okay. just represents the miner. And then I pick a percentage, like, do I pick a percentage of the block weave that I'm going to host? No, you pick an amount of data that you'd okay. like to host. Um, okay. Yeah, if it was a percentage of the block weave, then as it expands, your folder <laughs> would get bigger. Makes yeah. sense. So I'm like, okay, I can host this much. Mm -hmm. So a lot of different people or individuals will come and become miners uh, through this process and they say, okay, I'm going to host this much data. What if you have, what if the block weave is so big and there's not enough people hosting enough? <laughs> right. This is the core question. So the okay. answer to that is that we have indicators that tell us basically when, uh, when data storage is becoming scarce in the uh -huh. network. And as soon as we get like to a position where there are less than a hundred replications of a normal piece of data, then the price of storing a piece of data increases dramatically. And when this happens, either one of two things happens, right? Either the people storing data stop storing so much data, or they continue to store the data, but the reward for taking part as a miner increases. Higher reward for miners, more miners join the network, more storage capacity, price goes down again. I um, want to dig into that because like, I know that you have a pretty unique miner reward structure. Um, so like, how does that miner reward work? Like, what's the? It's not just... Uh, I mine this block, I get one Bitcoin kind of reward, right? Yeah, exactly. So what we do is um, we have a carryover pool in each uh, block. And when you add transactions to the network, uh, the rewards go into that pool. And then you take a proportion of the pool relative to the size of the recall block that was required in order to mine that block. So basically, you plot a kind of sigmoid curve where the 50% the point is on the average size of the block in the network. And then if it's much larger than that, then you take a larger take from the pool. And if it's much smaller than that, you take a lesser amount. Uh, so this essentially means that you're uh, providing an ongoing incentive for storing any piece of data through what's kind of like a, a storage-specific smart contract, if you like. 
Really, it's just you're making a contract with the network that says, hey, can you make sure that you give out a small reward for the storage of this piece of data indefinitely? And obviously, the reward gets smaller over time. And this is part of the consensus and gets validated when you yeah, mine exactly. blocks. So yeah. if someone is trying to take a larger portion of the pool, then um, you know that's an invalid yeah, block precisely. and you'll, they've forked off the network. So going back to this question, which I think is central to like a lot of what we're talking about is what are the guarantees of this system? Like, do you have a guarantee that your data is available forever? Do you have a guarantee that it is stored forever, even if it's not available? And like, what what are the guarantees provided? And just knowing what I know, I, I feel like it has to be probabilistic guarantees. Yeah. So there's a guarantee that there's always an incentive inside the system to produce the data on demand uh, and to perpetuate the data going forward. Um, the number of replications is probabilistic, but it's sort of set such that there's such a a large, um, what would you say, like buffer zone, that there there is always going to be a, a very large number of replications. And what, what determines, so you started talking about this, what determines the probability of, of my data being stored forever? Like what are the parameters that go into this? Because like you say, like we aim to have a hundred replications and then prices go up if it's less or like, what are the parameters that go into that? Well, I guess there's all sorts of things. I mean, it's price of token of obviously would be an important one. Um, number of tokens in the pool. Yeah. I mean, there, there's tens, hundreds of factors. But the goal is with extremely high probability, your data is stored forever and available for retrieval at any time. This is the point, yeah. Like yeah. the whole uh, system is engineered such that that incentive overrides pretty much everything else. Are there cases where people's data could actually be lost? Well, it's probabilistic. So theoretically, it's possible, but the likelihood is extraordinarily low. So, I mean, if you, if you have data replicated on 150 miners, if all of those 150 miners burnt their hard drives, then they would obviously lose data. Um, I'm more curious, though, like something that's more likely to happen is there's a bug in the software of the miner and accidentally delete something. (laughs) (laughs) That's an interesting one. Yeah, we we don't delete anything inside the miner. So we just move data to a sort of retired directory. Yeah, we're we're extremely careful to make sure that this kind of thing, uh, yeah, can't happen. Or at least, uh, yeah, it has an exceptionally low likelihood of happening. Of course, if you have an internet-connected computer just running Arweave or any other kind of piece of software, there's a, a very low chance that someone will find some kind of um, yeah, remote code exploitation bug. But actually, we're running the system on top of Erlang, which is extremely well-tested code. This is the um, telephony framework, essentially, that runs like you know 20% of every major Western country's um, yeah, telephone lines. So if there were remote code exploitation systems or problems inside Erlang, we would probably have found out about it like 30 or 40 years ago. What if, okay, so a different maybe scenario, but what if like, so 150 miners are hosting all this data, the data pool, the the full thing becomes very, very large, and then those miners stop participating. What would, like, I understood that the price would go up and it would incentivize, but what if they still dropped off? then it doesn't work. Well, I mean, there's always a potential that all of the miners could leave the Bitcoin network and then, (laughs) you know, or there's a remote code exploitation problem in Bitcoin and it just deletes all of the copies of the the blockchain in, in existence. But actually, one of the interesting things we've seen with the network so far 
is that it's kind of like a, if a meme in the Dawkinsian sense that produces more and more copies of the data, regardless of whether those data copies are actually connected to the network. So what we find by talking to miners that have turned off their machine for whatever reason is that they haven't deleted the copies of the network. Like they've just left them on their hard drives. And over time, those old copies accumulate. And what's cool about the network is essentially if there's a piece of data that um, very few people are replicating or nobody's replicating that's connected to the network, it'll basically just wait there. And the storage or the incentive for someone to go out and find that piece of data continues to grow. So if you have a miner that you turned off and then um, you sign up for like a mailing list that says, hey, we're looking for this block, basically if the if the chain just stops for a while, um, you say, oh, that's interesting. I would get a very large reward if I turn back on my miner. And sure enough, you reconnect it to the network and then you reseed that data to everyone else. And now that copy is back in existence. So, and another thing to cover is that the um, the incentive for storing a piece of data increases as the number of people storing that data decreases. So this oh, is essentially because... The rarer it is, the Right, the rarer valuable. it is, the more valuable it is. Hmm. So you're incentivized to seek out those rare blocks and make replications of them. Because essentially, if you're the only person in the network that has a copy of the data, if that data is chosen as a recall block, then you're guaranteed the reward if you're online. Uh, whereas obviously, normally you're competing against hundreds or thousands of other miners. Is there a way that I can censor the distribution? Like, can I create a block and make sure that I'm the only one that holds a copy of it? <laughs> well, I mean, if you don't distribute it to the rest of the network, then I guess in principle, yeah, like a block withholding attack, like you would yeah. on any other blockchain. But you wouldn't get any rewards. Yeah, but you wouldn't get a reward and the data wouldn't be mirrored by anyone else. So it's kind of like you've made your own fork, I guess. <laughs> and you're sitting there being like, it's mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but if you could distribute it, like get it included, but make sure that you're the only miner ah, that had it and mined right, it. Right, got it. No, you, still no, you it. can't do that. Uh, the, everyone else in the network needs to have a copy of the data locally to verify it and add it to the block weave. So yeah, there's this sort of um, leveling the play on, playing field that happens. In order for you to get the reward for the block, everyone else has to have it at some point. They can then delete it if they want to, but like, yeah, they have to have seen the data. This might sound super random, but like, where does the minor reward come from in this system? Is it just generated? Like, it's, you guys have a token. Mm -hmm. Miners just get some of this token. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the rewards are in the token, but they get some of the reward from, you know, sort of typical inflation schedule. And they get the rest of the reward from the uh, TX reward pool which is sort of that one that's carried between blocks and a small portion for literally mining the block that those transactions go into. So I guess it's three sources. Is there like, if someone's trying to access the data, they are paying something? No, we bundle in the price of access into the initial payment. So when you, you, pay, payment? you pay to put data on the network. Uh -huh. Yeah, exactly. So I when see. you want to enter the data into it, then you, you pay. That's when you pay. Yeah. And, and that payment is then distributed out to the miners. Exactly, yeah. Plus other things. Plus uh, inflation rewards, but over time. Okay. What do you think of the storage fee uh, discussions that most blockchains now are having of saying sort of we can't let the blockchain grow indefinitely. We have to put a, like paying ones for infinite storage, there's an incentive misalignment. And like, how do we, yeah keep things around forever yeah it certainly doesn't work if you just have a system like bitcoin or ethereum where you pay once you get the transaction put into a block and then all of that reward goes directly to the miner 
and that's just it. That's the end of it. No, that, that doesn't work. Um, with our system, we make the storage of that old block part of the consensus mechanism. So essentially what you're doing is you're offsetting value that would otherwise be spent on hashing on the storage of data. That's our approach. And, and well, that's one layer to the approach. The other layer is you simply work out what the perpetual cost of storage is. And then you make sure that the TX reward pool is uh, yeah, distributed over time such that it mirrors that. And actually, like the perpetual cost of just storage on its own is fairly simple to work out, like at least at this point. So you can look uh, at technologies that are kind of 50, maybe 100 years, but that's pushing it down the pipeline. And you can look at the theoretical maximums for data density um, and data access. And you can see that we're like vastly, vastly far away from those limits. And you can also plot backwards in time and you can say, okay, well, storage costs decreased along this sort of curve. We can see that out here there are technologies that are going to sort of follow that curve as well. Yeah. And then you can essentially just work out what the perpetual cost of that storage is. Yeah. It's a really interesting topic, actually. We talk about this all the time. We have a PhD <laughs> economist in-house that, uh, yeah, this is kind of his favorite topic. Yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, addressing it through, you kind of have storage fees by just the incentive model, but I guess it's inflation driven. Like the, the person that pays for storage in the first place doesn't keep paying to have it stored. Uh, they do. Their, their tokens go into the reward pool, which is then slowly eked out over time in decreasing quantities. So the idea is that as well as the competition-based reward, where essentially you're, you're offsetting that value that's otherwise spent on hashing, on storage, you're also making sure that there's a profitable reward in tokens from mm -hmm. the uh, token reward pool. Yeah, that just compensates miners for the storage of that old data. Right. And this is the bit that's just like a kind of... Um, it's It's almost like... You're setting up a, a contract through the network to just give out these tokens indefinitely. And the nice thing is the network, you know, uh, has very low overhead of cost of running. So you can do that very simply. Yeah. So out of the pool, there's a pool and you're going to be continuously paying out these fees to miners. There is inflation on that pool. Uh, no, the inflation is uh, elsewhere. Elsewhere. Yeah, block rewards. Okay. Yeah. And sort of, you sort of mentioned it here, but the the payments out would be smaller and smaller and smaller as time goes on. The assumption then being that the price will go up? No, 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 okay. no. The, the payment for old data goes uh, decreases oh. over time in line with the expected increase in um, storage density and the decrease in storage cost. But that's not the primary mechanism. That's a sort of backup mechanism, if you like. The main one is just that uh, we're offsetting the competition with hashing that goes into, um, you know, Electricity wastage, basically, with proof-of-work systems with just storage of data. Is there a cost to serving it, to serving the data? So, so that's competition-based as well. So essentially yeah. what you're doing when you pay to put a piece of data into the system is to have that data uh, added to the consensus mechanism itself. And part of that is also the incentive mechanism for moving other bits of data around the system. But I mean more like if it's trying... So when it's accessed, is there a cost? Not at the point of access, no. Okay. But it, just like in life, is there a cost? Is there a... When I go check out something and pull it out, is there a cost of electricity? Is there a cost somewhere along that line that could be incurred by the miners? So there's definitely a cost to miners of storing data and serving Not the data story. for oh, sure. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. yeah absolutely. Um, but we've essentially bundled that price into the initial price. And then, yeah, the miner is getting okay. paid for that uh, yeah. through the token reward. The reason I'm asking there is like, what if one piece of data is super, super popular and <laughs> yeah, then all absolutely. the rest is like not? So what happens yeah. if that... So 
all data distribution mechanisms follow a sort of Pareto distribution. There's very small pieces of data, uh, a very small number of pieces of data that are very highly sought after. And then there's a massive long tail of, um, yeah, data that people want once or twice in the whole of its storage length. Uh, yeah, so what you do is you just amortize out the cost of that data uh, serving across all of the data. On the topic of storage fees, I just wanted to uh, bring something up. And, and I wonder if you've looked at this. And, and this is sort of the problem in Ethereum, for instance. I keep bringing this up because it's my, my main point of <laughs> reference. Uh, but the problem there is not the cost of storage. Like the, the state size is actually not that large. It's like 12 gigs. Anyone can have that on their computer. It's not a problem. Uh, the problem with storage is the performance of the system as a whole degrades the larger the storage state is. So 12 gigs of data is not a problem to store in like drive space, but 280 million tree nodes is hard to manage in a database. And the performance of the system degrades as the, like, as a sort of secondary effect of storing more data. Uh, is this something that you've analyzed in your system? And like, what, what's the performance aspect of the system as it grows? Yeah. So um, confirming new blocks is constant time. So big O1, essentially. So more data added to the system doesn't add to the amount of time it takes to verify a new block. Um, and the way that we do this is essentially we just don't entangle the block or the data stored in one block with the data stored in another block in the same way that sort of traditional uh, tree-based systems do. So yeah, of course, um, with Ethereum or Bitcoin, you end up with this sort of ever-increasing tree. Um, yeah, we just don't have that because we split the blocks differently. And this is coming back to the independent hash system. This is so that we can do that. We need to be able to take a, a block from someone else in the network, like uh, the time of verifying a new block, and have them serve that to us and then say, oh yeah, okay, sure, that is actually the old block. I don't need to... Um, yeah, I don't need to sort of verify the the recall block associated with that, etc. So yeah, it's it's constant time. But that that was something that um we actually changed in a, a recent hard fork because the original version it would have slightly increased in complexity for each new block, but now it doesn't. It's constant. What exactly do you see Rweave as replacing? What place does it actually take? Yeah, so we don't actually see it as replacing anything. We don't think that permanent information storage in this way has ever existed before. Like, the real goal, if you want to think about it in that sense, is to remove the existence of the idea of a memory hole. That is, uh, a place where you can put information that was once public and well-known and such that it can be forgotten to all humanity and uh, stop affecting our decisions made in the future. And that was what got us into this in the first place. We were really interested in how you store uh, actually with the potential of storing news articles on a blockchain. That was what got us started in the first place, because back in what, 2016, there, there was a sort of a rise in the phenomena of fake news. And one of the, um, one of the tactics that happens in information warfare is not just the spreading of fake news, but also the retraction of that news later it, silently without telling anyone. You can't even track anyone. it down. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a real problem because, of course, these uh, pieces of information affect the way that people make, take decisions. And so in Ukraine, you can see very clearly, I won't go into the geopolitics too much, but you can see very clearly that some of the sides in the operation 
were attempting to affect the way that people acted with this fake news and then removing the sources such that no one knew where that data actually came from. So we weren't fans of this. Um, we thought, okay, well, blockchains are kind of good at um, data integrity and making large copies of data. And so we started with that. And then, you know, two years later, we ended up with the block weave. And actually recently we... Um, so talking about Ukraine again, there was the Kerch Strait incident, which is where some uh, Russian naval ships, let's not say attacked, but uh, engaged in some fashion, some Ukrainian ships at the uh, at the Kerch Strait, at the Sea of Avoz. And there were news articles written about this by Russian propaganda outlets, one particular one by Sputnik. And people from our community managed to make a copy of that data on the Arweave. Fine, at the time that was kind of interesting. That's history on a blockchain. That's pretty cool. So we wrote a blog about it. But then a couple of months later, we realized that actually that original Sputnik article had been deleted. The Russian government had attempted to censor their own propaganda on the issue, but they couldn't because it's embedded in the block weave and there's 150 copies distributed globally. And they simply can't censor that information now. But there is, I mean, there's like the, what's it called? The archive web or the... Yeah, the Internet Archive. Yeah, the Internet Archive. We're big fans of the Internet Archive, but it's centrally managed and controlled. And also, you know, they're just as susceptible to fires as every other archive. Like there was, in fact, a fire in 2016 where they lost um, some data that had just been digitized, I think. So they just about avoided having sort of catastrophic data loss. But this is a pretty serious issue. If you have a centralized archive, you are always um, susceptible to hardware and, um, I guess, disaster type failures, you know, the fire, flood, all of these things. So we think that decentralized archives are really the way to go. The Internet Archive is also mostly paid out of the pockets of a few rich people. So it's yeah, like clearly too. not sustainable. <laughs> yeah. And and also, you know, that they're a single person to go to and, and um, ask for data to be removed, which does happen. Whereas in our system, we have this thing that we call the, the decentralized content policy. So each miner in the network can choose which data they want to store or not to store. And also they vote with their hashing power on uh, whether pieces of data should be allowed into the network or not. Uh, as a consequence of this, at the sort of meta level, you get group consensus about what sort of data should be in this archive. Whereas, oh, wow. What's this part? So this is yeah. like a it's like a governance part or something. You're voting to accept it in? Yeah. I mean, it's actually really simple at the protocol level. All that's happening is you have sort of black lists of content that you won't accept. So it's um, the moment it's hash-based or uh, substring-based. So you can block content based on whether it's a piece of known data you don't want. Um, or whether it contains some piece of data that's sort of repeated uh, that you don't want to have access to. And when someone sends you one of those transactions, you'll just delete it. And so if somebody sends you a block later, which contains one of those transactions, you just won't accept the block. And so this happens at a network level. It causes essentially a vote using hashing power, see whether the data gets into the network or not. But can you actually, are the miners actually able to say, we don't want a certain kind of data, like a actual website? So, non-hash related, yeah. but like, like you know, yeah. bad stuff. You, yeah, of course. Like- <laughs> so you can do substring matches on uh, website names, and that would block it for now. But one of the things we're working on in the future is making it so that people can call out to external APIs and essentially delegate that task of um, blacklists to someone else. So Google offer an API that will take any image and it will find out for you approximately what they think is inside that image. And then if you're a miner, you can just decide based on that um, yeah, whether you want to accept it or not. Similarly, uh, there are sort of other APIs for illicit content detection, that kind of thing. So our idea is to make it so that the miners have this, um, 
they can use the tools that the big centralized web powers now use to protect their systems from this kind of illicit content uh, on their own machines. That's where we're heading with this. Can anything be deleted? Not deleted. So, well, when you write a piece of data into the block weave, what you are essentially doing is paying to have it added to the consensus mechanism. Uh, this doesn't guarantee you, as we spoke about, that there will be a copy of it. It just makes an extremely high likelihood that there will be. So we essentially have a system whereby uh, content is voted in on a consensus basis. So 51% or more say it should be in, then it gets into the network. Um, but it's voted out on a unanimous basis. That is, you have to have every single miner in the world decide not to store the piece of content for the content not to be there. This kind of goes back to that question of like, could it be lost? But here it's like, could it be banned? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, we think that the, the really interesting thing about decentralized networks is the competition-based approach to typical economic activities. So no longer do you have to make a contract with someone that says, I would like you to do this for this length of time and I will pay you this much, which, by the way, you know, there's no guarantee that everyone will um, uh, abide by their contracts. This is, of course, a problem that you get in, in storage and seer and so on. Um, yeah, we take the, the inverse approach, which is we say, okay, well, let's make sure that everyone is competing to make or to do as good a job as is possible uh, to fulfill this thing that you've paid them to do. I feel like that's a really interesting aspect that I haven't really thought about. Like, how do you do content policies? And I mean, there, I assume you run into a bunch of intricacies around, like you said, you have some way of measuring, like, the distribution of this piece of data is roughly around, uh, among the, this number of miners. But then you introduce, you know, now it's not just among miners, it's among miners that don't have a content policy that excludes this content. Like, you're, you're like, who the data is distributed among has quite a lot of factors. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly a, a fairly complex distribution system, that's for sure. I mean, but the, the same uh, incentives apply. You know, if a piece of content is uh, mirrored by a small number of people, there's a high incentive to store that content. How do you, we didn't dig into this before, but how do you detect how many people do store something? Yeah, this is interesting. So we don't detect it directly uh, because there are questions of... Um, basically people faking, um, which we have a mechanism for getting around, uh, but we didn't make it a core part of the protocol. Instead, what we do actually is look at the hashing rate in the network and use this as a, an indicator for the likely number of replications of any piece of information. So if the effective hashing rate is 10 peta hashes, say, and then we're only actually seeing one peta hash, then we can say that there's approximately 10% uh, replication of the content in the network, something like that. Uh, but getting back to this question of what we see it replacing, uh, we, we don't really see it replacing anything. We think that permanent information storage is a new kind of thing. And we also think it offers something that people simply cannot buy in the centralized world. Like there's something particular about this case of uh, decentralized replication of data that, that you just can't get if you go to Amazon and you say, hey, <laughs> replicate my data. They'll be like, okay, sure, I can do it in these and these and these regions. But it's just not um, the same level of integrity as you get with a blockchain. So yeah, we don't really see that we're competing against anyone in that sense, which is quite kind of exciting. Like uh, part of the interesting job of adoption is to sort of educate people on why permanent information storage might be important. The only thing I can compare it to offhand is the story that Suko tells about how there was like a love letter in the blockchain, in the Zcash blockchain. <laughs> yeah. 
what was it? It was the data. It was like the data was in the data field. There was like a hash of a document that was a love letter. Yeah, I mean, a lot of blockchains have <laughs> stored data. It's just storing one gig on Bitcoin. It's extremely <laughs> right. expensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've actually said the word permaweb yet, but I know that on your website, <laughs> you have that listed as one of the things that you guys are building or building towards. Sort of a philosophical question, but I, I was trying to think if like a permanent web is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So there are obviously pieces of data in society that should not be permanent. Like we don't apply this as an, as a generic, uh, storage solution because it's permanent. There are certain types of information that should be eternal and uh, many other types of information that should be ephemeral. So things like uh, we're working with some stable coins to store their attestation documents that say how much is in the bank account, which backs the stable coin. This is the kind of thing you want permanent record of. You don't want to lose those pieces of information. But, you know, like um, your private IM messages with your spouse, that's obviously the kind of data that should be ephemeral. So we make no you know, bones or claims about uh, this being generally applicable to every single thing. It simply isn't. Um, but actually, one of the things that we see that the other decentralized storage systems might have a problem with is that you can buy storage that's fairly well replicated, you know, enough if, it, if it's not that important to you, very easily and cheaply from Amazon or Google. And decentralization, we're obviously, I think, I assume <laughs> we're all in agreement is a better thing in general, but it's very hard to get people to make a shift like that, particularly for their uh, critical infrastructure. So, yeah, I mean, this is up to them to show, but we see that they might have a hard time um, just selling it on the fact that like, yes, okay, it's storage, but it's decentralized this time. We think you have to have an extra angle and that's what we offer with permanence. So I guess what you're doing is you're focusing then on this archive, the archival websites, the things that would need to be kept for a long period of time, and people potentially would pay to have that kept for a long period of time, and not for just general websites. Like my blog, I might not want it to be permanent. I don't know. Maybe yeah, I do, but I mean, like, maybe I don't. So <laughs> like, that wouldn't be a thing. right example. I think that's actually like a personal philosophical question. I think there's a lot of people that do want their blogs to be permanent. So one of the things that we can offer is that like, okay, you can add your website to the permaweb, um, say it's a blog. And then what you're essentially doing is, is adding your thoughts to this sort of massive collection of uh, human history and knowledge, which will be perpetuated for generations to come. So in the same way that we look back at I know, Anne Frank's diaries or these kinds of things from World War II, this is a generic system for sending those messages to the future. In fact, one of the, the ways that we've been sort of conceptualizing this is that the internet connected people across large areas of space um, extremely efficiently. What we would like to do is connect people over very long periods of time in the same way. And that's why we've kind of built a web on top of this thing. Um, so briefly about the permaweb, I mean, it's decentralized storage network. So you can uh, load and serve uh, HTML and websites uh, across it to a browser. And as a consequence, you sort of get a web on top for free. So you can make a website. And, and one of the things we've been looking at is just simple boring or not not boring but simple kind of easy uh developer hackathon type things that you're putting together and you're like oh i've got this little javascript application that does this this is kind of cool but i don't want to pay amazon like seven dollars a month to run a server to keep it online i'll just put it on this thing and it costs me you know a fraction of a penny and it's there forever it's the kind of thing that i don't particularly care if it's there forever but 
um, I'm not going to be upset if like it's still there in 20 years time, right? It's just, I need somewhere to store it simply and cheaply. You sort of touched on some other projects and what are your thoughts on the other projects in the space, in the decentralized storage space? I would also be curious to hear, yeah, like we talked in the previous episodes about sort of this P2P winter and like how the the improved UX of centralization took over and then how it's now kind of coming back. Like what's your thoughts on the state of decentralized storage? Huh. That's an interesting one. I mean, the first thing I guess is that we're massive fans of uh, BitTorrent as a protocol. We think BitTorrent is the coolest thing. Um, the other incentivized storage projects, like I said before, I think they're going to have a bit of a hard time gaining adoption because it's not immediately clear to people outside of the space what the advantage is over just centralized storage. Um, yeah, I think there's quite a way to go on the adoption side there. How much does it, just out of curiosity, how much does it cost to store data on we right now? One factor is that the price of storage of a byte increases for every added byte. This is to incentivize people to keep transaction sizes small. So if you have a very large file, you split it over many, many transactions, which means we can sort of fit it into blocks in a more efficient manner, then we save you money on your storage. But if you really insist on storing it in one big thing, then we'll allow you to do it, but it's just more expensive. Uh, but say for, um, I don't know, we just before I came on here, we were hacking together a kind of uh, decentralized web, sorry, <laughs> decentralized mail system on top of this web. So sort of web mail, but it's all decentralized. It's uh, secure, permanent. Um, and I think to send a message, it was costing something like a hundredth of a cent, that kind of thing. We're talking yeah, in the range like of... Like a cent um, per megabyte-ish? Approximately, yeah. <laughs> Another thought I had while we were talking, was curious, uh, like not are we related really, but a curious speculation is you could, like you said, you could delete data from this network. It requires all the miners and everyone in the, in the sort of pool to agree that this is something we're going to delete and you go and do that. You could have like completely off-chain coordination where like someone goes around to all the miners saying, hey, I'll pay you a hundred bucks to delete this thing. But you could also do that in protocol. You could say like, here's a transaction. I, you know, I, I proved that I was the one that put it on the chain. I now want it off the chain and I'll pay all of you this much <laughs> yeah. to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting one. We wondered about having a sort of burn list. The, the, the same user that put the data into the network can come back and then, um, yeah, ask for that data to be removed or no longer mirrored. So for a start, they can come along and they can say, hey, like, I would like you to delete my data. Uh, and there's a special kind of transaction type that you can issue. And then it's up to miners to decide whether they honor it or not. Um, but yeah, we've thought about the literal concept of just canceling the the essential permanent contract for storage. And we think that uh, it, it sort of breaks the core use case of the system. Like if you can be coerced to delete a piece of data, then it's no longer a permanent record of human history. Yeah. Like there are many places in really what we're attempting to stop is the idea of book burning in the digital age. Mm -hmm. And there are many times in history where people have been, you know, coerced to a much higher degree <laughs> to uh, remove information than would be required to just get them to issue this uh, retraction transaction. So it's not currently on our agenda to add it to the protocol. But you know, like it, this is a seriously decentralized project, we don't yeah. own any of it. Yeah. So if the miners wake up tomorrow, and they're like, Hey, guys, let's make a system for revoking the contracts, then they can definitely do that. What it keeps reminding me of is like the 
library in Alexandria and right. it burning down yeah. and how so many copies of so many interesting pieces of work were ruined. And now there's only like echoes of them, like text referencing texts that were gone. Right. I mean, that's, that's yeah. it just keeps appearing. Like, yeah, completely. Just reminding me of that. What's particularly funny about that story is that they actually lost all of the records of losing all of the records at the Library of Alexandria. So we don't even know how it burned down or even if it actually existed. <laughs> It's, yeah, at this point, it's completely lost in the mystery of, in the, like, uh. Yeah, I like that. I mean, just how many manuscripts and everything were yeah. lost. And then the only way that some of them survived was because there had been copies somewhere in other exactly, libraries around right? the world. Like replicas almost. Yeah. <laughs> Decentralized <laughs> yeah. replicas, in fact. <laughs> One other point I want to bring up, uh, Frederick's favorite topic, GDPR. <laughs> That's sarcasm there. He's cringing right now. Um, <laughs> I, I wonder, I mean, when you're talking about having something deleted and having the miners choose, it's a really, it's a, it's a topic that constantly comes up when we talk about like zero knowledge stuff and we talk about blockchain stuff. So how are you thinking yeah, about GDPR? It's pretty simple from our case. In fact, it's actually better than other blockchain systems from the point of view of miners. Because if somebody says, hey, don't, do, or don't store my piece of data, then we have a mechanism that allows them to stay a member of the network and also delete that information. It's that simple from our point of view. But what if the miners say no? Well, the miners are in GDPR parlance data controllers. It is their responsibility legally to, to deal with this issue. We give them all of the tools that we can to make it easy. Um, but they are, as is sort of the point of decentralized networks, free agents. You know, they, they are responsible for themselves and also they can earn money for themselves. So as a consequence, they must decide, um, yeah, essentially which requests to comply with. I mean, this almost brings it though, like, so that sort of makes them also sound like censors. Like they could, <laughs> yes. it's so funny because mm -hmm. there's almost like this line that these miners will inevitably have to walk, which is, so for example, say something is saved that currently is deemed fine and in 20 years is deemed not okay content, they could take it down and then they would be acting as... Senses, yeah, no, the arbiter we, not, um, of, of what's allowed to be of course. permanent. Yeah, we we don't try and uh, escape the fact that no, the miners are sensors. They are definitely sensors. I mean, sort mm -hmm. of. We actually come at it from a different point of view, and we say, okay, well, in the decentralized network, you you can't force people to do anything. So it's sensible that we give the miners the ability to decide what they want to take part in. And of course, if no one wants to take part in an activity, then the activity doesn't happen. Um, but a consequence of this is absolutely they're acting as censors. There's no getting around that. But it would be, did you say it was 100% of miners would need to agree in order to take something out? Yeah, I mean, what you're really just asking is for the data not to be replicated, dot. And so you have to get everyone in the network to, to decide delete it. not to replicate the data. Wow. That's hard. And it's also, I mean, beyond that to some degree, because the miners kind of can, can reject it from the consensus and from mm -hmm. replicating it further. But you, like, as long as any full node has joined this network and stored everything, you, you, even if they're not a miner, they still have that da data. You can't force them to delete it as well. Like, mm. so it depends on how far uh, spread out everything is. Well, this, this is like the web, right? I mean, the yeah. sort of, I think one of the things that in this, in our society, we're going to have to come to terms with over the next you know, 10, 20 years is that as soon as the bits leave your laptop or your computer, you don't really own them. And you can't be sure that replications of those bits don't exist somewhere else. 
And that's just a fundamental fact of the, the networks that we started building when, when the internet came about. And it's not going to be something we can get away from. In fact, really, as soon as something is in the internet, it's in kind of a quantum state where it may exist permanently, but it also may not. There's no real way of knowing. <laughs> you mentioned adoption a little bit earlier, and that's something that's interesting to me. And so we've seen how blockchains try to gain adoption with developers or with users or just like MetaMask, which is like an adoption project, but it's kind of centralizing things or like moving things in, in different directions. How do you guys think about adoption and, and like particularly being like you're not Bitcoin or Ethereum, so then you kind of have to deal with the reality that people will hold multiple tokens. And if, if for instance, one of the use cases is, you know, I, I store my entire front end, I store all my data on Arweave, and I store my application logic on Ethereum, now I need two tokens, and how do I deal with that? Um, yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on this sort of space. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of adoption, I think um, it reminds me of uh, this uh, sort of section from Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, where he's talking about if you really want to get someone to adopt a new piece of technology, it has to not just be better than what they're currently using, but it has to be 10x better in some set of uh, ways, you know, more than one way. And and we really think that, that where we shine is we are at least 10 times better than any existing archiving system in the world. This is pretty clear to us, and we're attempting to make it clear to people uh, that we speak to. And yeah, that's actually going really well. So we see that um, lots of projects... Well, there's kind of two sides to this. There's the uh, decentralized space side, where people just need incentivized permanent uh, storage to go along with their blockchain appliance of some kind. We can offer that. Very, very simple. But outside of that space, there's a whole bunch of um, places in society where you need to store records for a very long period. And there's no real system that's set up to do that at the moment. So we're actually seeing a lot of um, advancement in that side. For example, we're working with a group of architects to make a system that stores architectural drawings uh, permanently. The idea being that because for regulatory reasons, they need to store copies of those um, files for 40 years anyway and can be fined you know, massive quantities of money if they don't. Uh, yeah, this is something that we can very easily fix for them and that they can't get from anyone else in society. If you go out and you say to Amazon, hey, I want to store this piece of data. And they're like, yeah, sure, fine. Just give it to us. We'll store it. What's the problem? Now, the problem is that they're definitely not going to be offering that same service in 40 years time. Likelihood of that is just, you know, tends towards zero. So from that point of view, we offer something that's pretty unique. Um, and that's very helpful for gaining adoption. Regarding the multi-token system, yeah, we're quite sure that there'll be uh, one, maybe two utility tokens uh, that people use as the sort of, if you like, mother token, and then they just buy quantities of the other tokens they need on demand. Uh, it's not clear what that sort of meta token will be yet, but, you know, I'm sure, well, could plausibly be Bitcoin with, you know, lightning networks on the side to, to settle the payments faster, something like that. Um, but that all remains to be seen. But as we understand it, there will be like... Uh, people will buy the token on demand to use the storage is our expectation eventually. Your architecture example, is that actually um, going to be used on the Arweave block weave or is it a kind of private? No, that, that one will be public. Yeah. Oh, it is public. Yep. It's on the main one. It will be. This is, this is okay. not uh, yet pushing on chain transactions, but many of the others are. Do you see projects asking you if they can do their own kind of like, private Sometimes. version? Sometimes. 
Could they just fork what you've done and then make their own little Yeah, I mean, you can do, but the problem is, like, it only works because of the incentive net mechanism, which gives you safety in numbers. Uh, so you can make your own private one and that, that works pretty well. And we can also make systems that say, okay, you've got a private one, but you submit the hashes from the transactions and the hashes from the blocks to the main one. And then you get some kind of security guarantees. Uh, but you don't get the safety in numbers you get with the public Arweave. And that's pretty critical to the way the whole thing works. In fact, I, I think private blockchains in general, I'm not a particular fan of. I think they don't offer nearly as many benefits as public blockchains. You know, fundamentally, if you're running a, a private blockchain for, I don't know, um, inter-business transactions or something like this, something where a very small number of people are involved, if it's the kind of thing where I can just boot up another 10 nodes and very quickly rewrite the history of the thing, then you're not really offering that much above a database. Uh, and as someone that just loves decentralized tech, I, th- I think this is pretty boring, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I think um, in your case, they're really like you couldn't really run a private version of it because you don't have civil resistance in like how this thing works. And the, the entire point from the start is, you know, you have other people storing things for you and you pay them. Like if you are storing it yourself, you're just paying yourself. Like there's no <laughs> right. There's yeah, no it's, um, real incentive mechanism around yeah, it. Yeah. Whereas with like if you, if you're running a private Ethereum network usually running it under a different consensus algorithm mm-hmm. than 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 mainnet so what you're really just looking for is a byzantine fault tolerant database that also has contracts like that has distributable code yeah i mean it's sort of like it's a blockchain nominally but it they're not after the decentralization aspect of a blockchain they're more after the operational efficiency and like there exists other byzantine fault tolerant databases but they're really hard to set up or they don't have these features or whatever. Yeah, precisely. I mean, like uh, when we started this, we were doing PhDs in uh, computer science and distributed systems. Uh, but we think that like at least 50% of the product that we've built is just economic incentives. It's mechanism design, really like top to bottom. And so you, you can make the technical side of it work. Like in a private sense, you just rip out the token, but you're missing half the point, at least half the point. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about this project. Thanks. It was really fun. If people want to find out more about all of this stuff, what should they do? Where do they go? Yeah, they can go to arweave.org where we have all of the uh, developer documentation, uh, a small sort of token canon. You can just give us your email address and we'll give you five tokens so you can get started storing some stuff. Um, Yeah. And like all of the... uh, Everything you need as a developer to get on board with the system is there. And what's particularly cool about it is that to build decentralized apps in our network, uh, you only require like HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, which, you know, many, many developers know. In fact, all web developers, which make up at least 30% of all developers, know very well. Yeah, so it's very open if you want to get started building dApps. People can actually build dApps on top of this. Oh, yeah, completely. So just before I got here, I was building this uh, permanent oh, mail app. Yeah, okay. And, and all it is is a... Uh, a sort of bundle of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript uh, that goes to the block weave. It's served from the block weave, right? So it's got an address. Uh, People point their browser to it. And if they have the web extension, they get decentralized access. And if they don't, they go through a gateway. But it serves back this bundle of uh, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, which says, okay, give me a wallet. Let me go check for transactions that are signed to you in the network. Yeah, and then just through JavaScript, it displays it as if it's a mail client and shows you the data stored inside. 
It's really super simple. We got the whole thing working in like six hours and it's decentralized email, which I think is pretty cool. Cool. Thank you very much. Thanks. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. 